Let us pray and we come and ask God to help us understand His Word. Lord, we want to thank you for this morning as we come. Come with a heavy heart, with a heart of uncertainty. But Lord, we know that in you, we have freedom in you. We have full confidence in you. We do not need to fear. And so Lord, we pray that may this, your word this morning speak to us, encourage us, and lift up our hearts so that we know that we worship, we worship an eternal God and a powerful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going through chapter 10 of uh, Genesis. And you know, if, if you're doing a topical study, I believe we will all skip chapter 10. We will just names and names and names. So my wife lead, uh, led the kind of lead the Bible study group with the woman, uh, the, the, the wives and the mothers uh, on a Tuesday morning. So she asked me on a Sunday, my Bible study can be very short, five minutes. All these names mean something to God. The end, let's have a celebration. Isn't it? You just take 10 minutes to read through the names, another five minutes to explain that all these names, they are all historical. Amen. Let's move on. So we can do that. But as I sat down, as the pastoral team sat down, we go through the studies, as I ponder upon this, I actually learned a lot from this particular uh, chapter itself. Not just from the chapter, of course, you're going to look at it much broader. And I pray today, this morning, uh, will help us to hopefully narrow it down a bit and then hopefully bring some clarity to how we can apply a passage like Genesis 10 in our life. So a couple of years back, I was introduced. I was introduced to a lot of things by Pastor Adrian, uh, plants, and of course this one is good. Uh, introduced me to this thing called uh, fish reeling, you know, aquarium. And actually it's quite therapeutic. I'm not sure whether you have an aquarium at home. Uh, I, I used to enjoy sitting down, coming back from a day of ministry, just in front, on the sofa in front of my fish tank and say, hey, watching the fish go around and you know, swim to and flow, it's actually quite therapeutic and it's quite a kind of stress relief. And you know, a few things I need to consider, you can think about as you set up a tank. You know, as, as you are doing that, as, as I was doing that, I got this tremendous sense of sovereign control over the fish tank. Because why? I determined the size of the fish tank, of course, with the permission of my wife, I determine what fish I want to put inside, plants, and I, and I go through YouTube videos and see how people set up their tanks, and I got this idea and this vision how my tank will look like. So off I went to the shop, get all the necessary, come back, and put all this in place. Wow, my creation, the fish tank of my life. But a few months later, I began to see fish dying, algae start to grow together with my plants, there's a stream that I put in, hoping to add some colours and diversity to the ecosystem, started to die, and or they were eaten by the big fish. So in reality, I actually have very limited control over this aquarium that I have. I don't have the power to ensure that the aquarium continue exactly the way I wanted it to be. I have the power to decide the, number, the, the fishes that I want to buy, the plants. I have no power to determine whether they multiply, they live, or they die. 
We saw in Genesis, isn't it? We have been going through the book of Genesis, we are new with us, and we're now at chapter 10. God put form into what was really formless. And God created substance, plants, animals, men and women, and placed them in this substanceless earth. God, the creator, the giver of life, has full power and total control of everything and even how everything would pan out the way he wanted them to be. And at no point, no point in that whole creation process, and no point till today, that God was taken by surprise by things that happened. And at no point, God's plan was derailed. So today, as we look at Genesis 10, Genesis 10 provides us the genealogy of Noah's family in the post-flood world. And we know why the flood came. That was last week or two weeks ago. And last week, as Noah and family came out of the ark, God reiterated the two commands that he gave to Adam and Eve. So if you got a Bible with you, you turn to me. You turn with me to, to uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 7. And verse 1 read, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And verse 7, And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What is God doing? God is reiterating His command to Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply and be fruitful. God has not changed. His command has not changed. And def definitely His keeping of His promises has not changed because God blessed every single of Noah's son. And that's what Genesis 10 testified to. Even Ham. Ham, who Noah cursed, because he had treated him shamefully and disrespectfully by laughing at his nakedness, God even blessed Ham with his line of descendants. So how should we approach a genealogy like what the one in chapter 10? So it's definitely historical. Historical means that the people that is listed in chapter 10 live on this earth once in their life. They are not myth, they are not legend, they are historical. But this is also, you look at Genesis, Genesis also look at the whole kind of historical uh, accounts from a narrative point of view. So I call this a historical narrative. It means that the narrator, by putting together the story in Genesis, putting together the, the genealogy, the who and who in this passage, want to tell us a story beyond just the who and who. Genesis 10, I believe, and the whole of Genesis have this overarching theme. One God, one people, and one salvation story. God and God alone created all things. God and God alone created man and woman in His image. And God and God alone set all things in their right place. Sadly, and we from Genesis 3, that the, the perfect relationship between God and man was broken. Broken because man, Adam and Eve, has turned away from God and rebelled against God. And from chapter 5, chapter 8, we saw God's diagnosis of humanity was that our hearts remain wicked from birth. 
But God did not stop there, isn't it? God did not stop there. God proceeds with this salvation plan that He makes sure that it will come to pass. So we see through the life of Adam and Eve, through Seth, through Noah, and then through Shem, as God unfolds His salvation story throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. So one thing interesting to note, a post-flood kind of genealogy, a post-flood kind of uh, humanity, that the narrator, if you have to, if you got some time, not now, but you can go some time, you count the number of names or the people that are named there, it totaled seven zero, 70. If you have any understanding about biblical narrative, seven, 70, 7 or 70 are significant numbers in the Bible. 7 or 70 signify perfectness, completeness. So if you look at it from a biblical narrative point of view, what is the writer wanting to tell us? That the post-flood inhabitants, the post-flood the post re-establishment of the earth was as perfect as it was in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Yes, the narrator has chosen not to list every single name, but he has carefully curated 70 names. And this 70 continue on in when Jacob and the family enters into Egypt. So in Genesis 46, 27, you want to kind of check the, the reference. Jacob entered, Jacob and the household entered Egypt, and there were 70 of them. And then later on, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, the Bible tells us that Israel was represented by 70 elders. Exodus 24, verse 9. So the overarching theme that you see here, one God, one people, and one salvation story provides for us, and for, for me, a very good framework to understand Genesis and this genealogy. So we go to our first point. God multiplied and spread out Noah's family. So three sons with their descendants were listed in Genesis 10. See, all the names there may sound very foreign to us. Some names are more familiar because we understand we have read part of the Old Testament and we recognize some of the names. But generally, the names are foreign to us. But can you imagine the Israelites, as he's about to enter into the Promised Land, remember these names or read these names again, Genesis 10 again. And you ask, hey, isn't this the people, especially the line of Ham, aren't these people the people or the land that we are about to enter? God has actually has all these names listed in the genealogy in chapter 10. I don't know what that do to them, but if I'm them, as I'm about to conquer them, I think I'll feel that, hey, God has all this met out and planned out. And then if they go back a bit to the, the narrative, and they read about how uh, Canaan was cursed by, by Noah, and that how Canaan will be serving the brothers, serving Shem, serving Japheth, I'm sure that gave them a sense of assurance that God was with them all this while. That even before Israel come to being, even before there's anything they call Israel, God has already said 
things in motion. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing? So I'm going to zoom in. We can't cover every 70 names, but I'm going to zoom in on a few key characters. And, and I think through these few characters, we will appreciate how God, the one God, one people, and one salvation story continues on, not just in the New Old Testament, not just here in Genesis, but throughout New Testament and into the future. So the first name that was mentioned, I'm just going to briefly run through. Jephthah, he was the very first one, although he's not the firstborn. But the reason why he was named first, because if you look at the history of Israel, the family of Jephthah has very little to do with Israel. They kind of have nothing, almost nothing to do with Israel. So they were named first, get it over and done with. The next group was Ham. Ham has the longest genealogy. And later we'll see why is that so. And then followed by Shem. Actually, these follow, if you, if you trace Genesis carefully, a pattern. The chosen one, the elected one, is always the one that is named last. So when, when we move from Seth to Noah, Noah was named last, and then Noah's story happens, right? So same thing. We see Shem, and then later we see from that point onwards how Shem and the family continue to be the prominent one in the plan that God has met out. So that's how Genesis 10 is kind of set in, in place. So let's look at Ham. So what do you know about the Hamites? Yeah, the Hamite is not the, the thing that you spread on your bread, but the people from Ham, okay? They are, they are actually very close in terms of geographically, politically, and economically to the people of Israel down the line. And this nation that we will see later serve as rivals, serve as enemies, and they literally surround Israel. Very much like we have been surrounded by the neighboring country. So who in Ham's lines are, are, are prominent? First, I think we can look at Egypt. We know about Egypt, isn't it? Egypt is one of sons of Ham. Egypt became a great nation, but we also know that Egypt had enslaved the Israelites. Egypt became an oppressor of Israel, and the Israelites was rescued out of Egypt and been led into the Promised Land. But later down in Israel history, Israel became a force, political and military security for Israel. Egypt was like the one that would lead Israel astray, thinking that if they make alliance with Egypt, they will be saved. What about Canaan? Canaan is one of the sons of Ham as well. He was the one whom God cursed for the sin of his father Ham. The Canaanites grew in prominence into a nation so big that when the Israelites were entering into the promised land, they were actually entering the promised land to dispossess the Canaanites from their land. They are the one that Israelites got to remove from the land. But we know from Israel's story, isn't it, that the Israelites failed to obey God fully and they did not remove the Canaanites fully from their land. And the result of that was what? They intermarried and the Canaanites in the land led Israel astray. 
The only one, I think, in the whole list that has some positiveness to it is Sheba. What do you know about Sheba? Very, very, very famous, the Queen of Sheba. What did the Queen of Sheba do? The Queen of Sheba in 1 King chapter 10 visited Solomon. And why did he visit Solomon? See, David has united the whole Israel, handed over the kingdom to his son Solomon. And Solomon asked for nothing else but wisdom from God. And God gave him wisdom, and he became the wisest man on earth. And the Queen of Sheba came because she heard about his wealth, his fame, and the wisdom that he has. But most important, the Bible record for us that she came because this king knew God. And can you imagine that? The people have been spread apart, but in the very snippet of history, God still made his name known, not just in Israel, but in the nation outside of Israel. Nimrod. Nimrod was single. If you read the genealogy, he was the one that singled out to be named. And why was he singled out? Sometimes we single people out for good things, but I think Nimrod was singled out for actually a bad thing. Because immediately after him came Baba, and we know what happened at Baba. God, they, they, they wanted to reach out to God, uh, reach up to heaven, and they wanted to have a name for themselves, and God dispersed them. But under the line of Nimrod, many cities were found. And one particular city is found in the land of Sina. And it's actually ancient Babylonian. And we know about Babylon, isn't it? Babylon is the epitome of human opposition towards who? Towards God and towards God's people. And alongside Nimrod is Sindon. And came. And with him came all the Jebusites, Amorites, the Gigashites, which you read just now, the Hevites. The only thing that is not there is the Termites. So these are the tribes of the Canaanites. And they become what? They were actually arch enemy of Israel. They are the ones that will eventually fight against Israel. So as you look back to chapter 9, as you continue to look at the list of the names there, we knew what happened in chapter 9, isn't it? How Ham disrespectfully and shamefully shamed Noah. And you trace the name there, no, there's no surprising to see two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know, if you don't know much about Sodom and Gomorrah, you can read about it in the Bible. But they are infamous. Infamous for what? For their wickedness and especially in the area of sexual sin. So you can see, in the line of Ham, are all these people that will actually do a lot of harm to Israel, or that they even threaten the destiny of Israel. But more importantly, if you know anything about the line of Ham, as you read, continue to read through the history, you may wonder, why were they allowed to prosper, multiplying? Because they threatened to derail God's salvation plan. Because they did nothing but opposing God again and again and again. So there's a line of him that the narrator have kind of put together for us. 
What about the line of Shem? The Shemites. Two names stand out. One is Eber. Why is Eber? Interesting, if you look at the line of, of, of Shem in the genealogy, Eber is actually the great-grandson of Shem. But he was named first before the sons. Never happened. But it means, it shows us that the narrator have brought Eber up to a permanent position because he is going to talk about him some way down the line. And with Eber, what do you know about Eber? The root, the apparent leader, the root of the name is Hebrew. And in Genesis 14, 13, we turn to Genesis 14, 13, we know of this guy called Aram, Abram, the Hebrew. And what do you know about this Abram, the Hebrew? He will eventually be Abraham. And we know Abraham is the father of the Israelites, the father of the Jews. And even all the way to the New Testament, they always say that they are the seed of Abraham. And Abraham had many children. You can hear the song, Father Abraham and many children. Yeah, you can sing that with your children next time. But he had many children, and what God made a covenant with him and say, I will bless you, and I will, the many nations will be blessed through you. And so that is the prominent of Eber. And from Eber came this person called Pelek. And what do you know about Pelek? Of course, comes in the line of uh, Abraham. But Pelek actually is an insight into Genesis 11, which we'll cover next week. So you look at the genealogy, it, it runs concurrently. And here the narrator inserted this person, Pelek, in the whole narrator, n- n- uh, narrative. Because he is going to live through Tower of Babel. And the reason why his name was named for his days, the earth was divided, is because in his days, God will disperse and scatter the people because of their sin. So we see Egypt, Canaan, Nimrod, Eber, Pilak are just a few names that I have singled out to show us the overarching theme of one God, one people, and one salvation story. But see, unknowing to them, none of them knew that their life is going to cross, they're going to cross path. Their destiny is going to intertwine so closely with God's chosen people many years down the road. We have the privilege of reading it back and understanding it and see how that all panned out. But can you imagine God putting all this in place, knowing exactly how all this will pan out? So the genealogy in chapter 10 ends with these words in verse 32. Follow me to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from this, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. What does that show us? The sons, the grandsons, great-grandsons, and the descendants enter into this world post-flood. God knew exactly how their time on earth would pan out. God allocated places on earth for them to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And God did not forget his promised salvation to the seed of the woman. And God will work through his salvation story through the line that he has chosen. And you go through all the way into the New Testament. So in trying to understand the Old Testament, usually we try to ask, 
What does the New Testament writer say about the Old Testament? And in this context, I found Acts 17, a helpful passage. So let's turn to that. And maybe let's read together. Acts 17, verses 24 to 27. One, two, three. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. Where, where, was, where did Paul say these, these words? What was, what, was, what was the context there? Briefly, Paul was walking around in the city of Athens. And what did he saw? He saw that they were very kiasu and kiasi. Because they have shrines for every god, they also have a shrine for to the unknown god, just to make sure that they cover all grounds. And Paul took that up and said, what is unknown to you, the unknown god that you worship? I now tell you who this unknown god is. And so he went on and said, it is a god who was known and wanted to be known. He is a creator of all things and is a giver of life. He is sovereign because why? He's able to determine, he and he alone, determine where everyone on earth will live, when will, be, when will we live on earth. And God did so, so that you and I, men and women, would seek God. But see, to the Athenians, this truth will derail all their false idols. Because they are so used to worshipping idols, talking about what life is all about, and Paul is saying, you can throw all that out of the window and worship this just one God. Because he is the true God, the giver of life, the one that is sovereign over your life and my life. Every aspect of life on earth is in the hands of this God. But what did man choose to do with this truth? Man chose to reject this truth. It started with Adam and Eve rejected God's voice, Cain, and then so on and so forth. You can list every single one in the history of Israel, Old Testament and New Testament, even to us today, how we have chosen to reject God. So before each one of us come to know the Lord, we all are guilty of rejecting God. So God is not the one that distancing himself from us. So now we are practicing social distancing, Right? then you are not practicing that. You're supposed to have one seat in between. It's all empty seat. This is the first time that we tell you, don't gather in, together and, and sit together. Now it's time to spread out. Yeah? But if we choose to distance ourselves from God, we are in deep trouble. We can distance ourselves from each other for now. Don't make it a habit to distance ourselves from each other. So the distancing now actually is good for our health. But the distancing from God is detrimental to our spiritual life and detrimental to our life here on earth. But we are the one. We are the one that have chosen to distance ourselves from God. But as the text says, God is never far from us. God is never 
never far from us. And that's why He called you, He called me into salvation. He's going to call many more to come to believe in Him so that they can experience this hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's what God is doing. To my next point, God will bring all people, tribes, language under Christ. As we read to Genesis at the moment, we see how sin has derailed humanity, how sin has turned people away from God. But God has continued to bless humanity. God has continued to allow and continue to fulfill His promise to, to, for us to go forth and multiply. And that is a blessing from God. But instead of us thanking God, we chose to rebel against God. But in our rebellion, God continued to work through His salvation plan. God continued to work through His salvation story so that one day, you and I is able to stand before Him as one people. So the dispersion, the distancing, it's not what God has intended it to be. But it's what we have made it to be because of our sin. And so we see, we catch a glimpse of that, of that God bringing people together under, the umbre- under His umbrella in Acts 2. In Acts 2, we know at Pentecost. And during the time of Pentecost, everyone was gathering at Jerusalem. And we know what happened, isn't it? The apostles spoke in tongues. And how do, we, how do you know what tongues they were speaking from or, or with? At the later part of the passage, we get a, 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 a revelation and say, all those who were gathered there, they were amazed and astonished. What were they amazed and astonished about? That they could hear the gospel clearly in their own language. The apostles speak none of those languages. But as the apostles spoke together, enabled by God, every single one of them heard the gospel message. And we know in Acts, the church grew by thousands in the book of Acts. So God gave us a glimpse of what He was trying to do. But I see God is is actually not very good in terms of coming to telling story. See, when you watch a movie, right? I mean, we all watch... Uh, crash landing on me. You don't want me to tell you the spoiler, right? You don't want me to tell you the end point, what happened, right? When you watch any movie, you don't want people to tell you the spoiler. But God has told us a spoiler. What is the spoiler? God is telling you, you need to guess how things will end. I'm going to tell you how things will end. He said, after this I look and behold, a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, all the tribes, and all the peoples, and all the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God, who sits on the throne and onto the Lamb. And all the angels standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Why is the spoiler that God is giving to us? God is telling us, you don't need to guess how the world will end. I am telling you how the world will end. The world will end with me gathering every single one who profess their faith in me. 
Every single one will be gathered as one people. Because my salvation story, my salvation plan has gone out and has reached many. One people under the lordship of God through Christ. God is faithful and merciful that he brought us redemption through Christ so that we can have the hope that one day every nation, every tribe, every people will come to know the Lord. Not just in Singapore, all over the world. All over the world that everyone that we call brothers and sisters in Christ will stand before our God doing what? Worshipping God. Saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and who is the Lamb. So one God, one people, and one salvation story. So what does this overarching theme of one God, one people, and one salvation story mean for you and I? I was humbled and assured as I was reading through different commentaries. Uh, one of the commentators pointed me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 29. He said, For in Christ you are all sons of God, true faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. And for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are, you are in Christ, you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to his promise. Paul's letter to the Galatians pointed them to that oneness that we all share in Christ Jesus. We are all baptized in Christ, we all believe in Christ, and our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And what inheritance do we share with all those who profess to be Christian? Paul says, we share the inheritance, like the first time, like, like, like Abraham, the inheritance of being blessed as a nation, as a people, through God. So that was a promise that God gave to Abraham, isn't it? That your numbers will be many, you will be blessed, and many nations will be blessed through you. As I was saying earlier, isn't it? Abraham came from the line of Eber line of Shem, line of Noah, Seth, Adam and Eve, and eventually God. Isn't that great? That you and I, actually, as we sit here today, 15th of March, we can trace our roots back to who? All the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way back to God. So if you hear anything about how we come to being, how the world come to being, how human are formed, they are all rubbish. Because there's only one way that we can be who we are today is because God, the one and only God, has created us in His image. The one and only God that has breathed breath into the life of men. And because of that, we walk, we move, and we have our being in Christ, in God and God alone. There is no one else, there is nothing else that has brought us to who we are today. And if we are, if we are following that, if we are part of the Abrahamic descendants, then I think you and I also have the responsibility for God to work in us, to work through us, to be a blessing to many. 
how then you and I can be a blessing to many, especially in this COVID-19 situation, isn't it? We have our social distancing, yes. But are we, are we kind of stirring fear in people's mind? Are we a fear monger? Are we a faith builder? How can we be a blessing to others? How can we reach out and extend our, our hands to help others? So my, my GP, my, my, my GP is very into all this, and, and as a Christian GP, he wanted to encourage the, 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 the medical worker. So he sent a text around, and a few of us, his patients, say, can you get either yourself, your church group, your people, whoever that is, to write thank you notes to the medical worker? That was much earlier on. So what did I do? I sent it off to my, my BBGB group and say, think about it. And my child calls my junior girls, Produce these two big banners that's still on my desk that I don't know how to give to them. Of all their thank you notes pasted on that two big note there. They didn't just do for the medical team. They did it for the pastoral staff too. Hey, that's nice, isn't it? So all I have to do is to take photo of every, every chunk of them and send it to my, my GP doctor. Say, hey, send it to the medical worker and encourage them. And there were encouraging words there. Encouraging words from P4, P5, P6 students. Words that is from their heart. Thank you for working so hard. We do not know where we will be without you. Nobody coached them to write those words. My officers just basically make the card available and the small little card available. What are we doing in this time of COVID-19 situation to be a blessing to others? Because you and I are Abraham offspring. And if you look at that whole Sovereignty of God in place in it. If God is sovereign, not like me in my aquarium, I can't determine whether they live or they die. But God has everything planned out. Christ came much, much later. But Christ came. Isn't our God sovereign? So that's what encouraged me to pray every morning for the COVID situation. Because if our God is not sovereign, then there's nothing to pray about. Now, no one to pray to. But because God is sovereign, I want to encourage you that every morning that you wake up, even though your life may not be disrupted by this COVID-19 situation, as Christian, as someone who put our faith and our hope in this sovereign God, we must pray. You must pray for this COVID situation above all your personal things. Because this COVID situation has hit the world globally. It has kind of brought us to almost a standstill. We can only pray that God has mercy. We do not know why this has happened. We don't know how this will pan out. We can only have trust and have the faith as we read through Scripture, how the genealogy worked out in the life of Israel and then to us. God has all this sorted out. And all we do as instrument, as man and woman under God, is to pray, pray, and pray. So can I urge you, one thing to take home is remember this whole genealogy to say that God is sovereign. Let me pray for God to show mercy. But more importantly, pray that those people that you come in contact with will be able to say, will see the faith, the hope, the trust that you have 
in Christ Jesus. It's one thing to pray and one thing to walk out of the, of the house and throw all that you pray about out the window and live in fear, live in, live in constant uncertainty. No. I pray. As much as we take all the necessary precaution, all the social responsibility that we need to do, all the hygiene that we need to do, all the social distancing that we need to do, but that doesn't change your faith, your trust, your hope in this sovereign God that we worship. And so we pray, we blessed. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to thank you that you're in sovereign control. You're allotted the time, the period, the place that we will be in. And this is a time and place. We do not know why are we in this time and place where this COVID-19 has taken the whole world by storm, has paralyzed the whole world. But we know that it's in your sovereign hand, that you are in sovereign control. So dear Lord, we pray and then we appeal for your mercy, for your grace. Show us, O oh Lord, how that in this time of challenges, in this time of needs, in this time of fear, that we can be men and women that stand confident in the Lord by faith, trusting you, and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Help us, O oh Lord, to go forth and do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.